Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Charles Lindbergh. Now let's get started with our story about Charles Lindbergh. On Friday, May 20th, 1927, at 7.52 a.m., a flight instructor and airmail pilot by the name of Charles Lindbergh took off from Roosevelt Field, Uniondale, Long Island, New York. His destination, Le Bourget Airfield, Paris, France. Even if successful, Lindbergh would not have been the first to cross the Atlantic nonstop in an airplane. That feat was accomplished by British aviators John Alcock and Arthur Brown, who, in 1919, successfully flew from St. John's, Newfoundland, to Clifton, Ireland. Instead, Lindbergh was intent on winning the $25,000 Ortigue Prize, a reward offered to the first aviator or aviators who successfully flew nonstop from New York to Paris, or vice versa. This prize, first offered in 1919 by a New York-based French hotel owner named Raymond Ortigue, was the subject of several attempted flights, especially in the months leading up to Lindbergh's endeavor. In September of 1926, French flying ace René Funk and three other aviators crashed on takeoff from the very same airfield, killing two crewmen. Only weeks before, French pilot Charles Nungesser and navigator Francois Colli left Paris for New York and remained visible to observers as far as the coast of Ireland, but then disappeared, most likely crashing in the Atlantic Ocean. Lindbergh himself, on May 10th, concerned that other aviators like Richard Byrd might beat him to the punch, flew his specially designed monoplane, the Spirit of St. Louis, from San Diego to New York with one stop in record time. Socked in for a week by weather conditions over the Atlantic, by May 19th, these concerns lessened, and the pilot quickly began final preparations for his record-breaking attempt. Although most aviators considered such a lengthy flight solo to be excessively dangerous, Lindbergh wanted to replace other potential crew with additional gasoline and wanted complete control over any operational decisions. So stripped down was his airplane that Lindbergh's only forward visibility was provided by a small periscope device on the craft's upper dashboard, the enlarged fuel tank design precluding a typical windscreen. In fact, the biggest initial challenge would be successfully getting off of the runway, the plane carrying 450 gallons of gasoline involving a total weight that Lindbergh had never attempted upon takeoff. 
Without sleep for 22 hours, even before he took off, Lindbergh faced the daunting challenge of remaining awake for the 35 hours necessary to reach Paris. Approximately 500 spectators stood in the cloudy, drizzly weather to watch as Lindbergh needed every bit of runway to clear the trees and overhead wires at the edge of the airfield. He was on his way to aviation history and a life that would never be the same. Charles Augustus Lindbergh was born in Detroit, Michigan on February 4, 1902 although his parents actually lived in the town of Little Falls, Minnesota. Lindbergh's grandfather, originally born Ola Manson, near the tip of southern Sweden, was a successful farmer, politician, and banker who was accused of bribery and embezzlement over unrepaid bank loans. In 1859, at the age of 50, he decided to leave Sweden, his wife and seven children, and emigrate to Canada. He brought with him his waitress mistress and their illegitimate son, born a year earlier. These emigrants eventually made their way to central Minnesota, where Manson changed his name to August Lindbergh and his son's name to Charles August Lindbergh. Industrious, if nothing else, August Lindbergh settled on the edge of the frontier, cleared some land, and established himself as a prosperous farmer. His son eventually decided that farming wasn't for him, and in his early 20s, he graduated from the University of Michigan Law School and returned to Little Falls, Minnesota, where he built a formidable law practice involving finance and real estate sales. Investing in real estate himself, he founded a bank and became one of the most prominent citizens in Little Falls. However, his personal prosperity was interrupted when his first wife was diagnosed with stomach cancer and in 1898 died at the age of 31. Two years later, the 41-year-old widower was introduced to a newly transplanted 24-year-old schoolteacher from Detroit named Evangeline Land, who had recently accepted a position teaching chemistry in the Little Falls school system. Land was unusual in that she had a college degree and was also quite opinionated and outspoken, coming from a long line of family figures prominent in the fields of medicine and dentistry. It wasn't long before she was at odds with the school district administration and quickly submitted her resignation, but not before C.A., as Charles was known locally, proposed, a proposal that resulted in marriage on March 27, 1901. A little less than a year later, on February 2nd, 1902, Charles Augustus Lindbergh was born. In 1902, C.A. Lindbergh was doing quite well financially, between real estate holdings and corporate clients like Weyerhaeuser and McCormick Harvesting, he could afford to build a five-bedroom house on 110 acres of land with modern amenities like indoor plumbing and central heating. But some fundamental issues began to plague both C.A.'s professional and personal life. Surprisingly, he was a soft touch in his business dealings involving real estate and his attempt to form an agricultural cooperative and outgrowth of his socialist tendencies collapsed, costing him $20,000, most of his liquid assets at the time. When his house burned down in 1907, the home built to replace it was nowhere near as comfortable. 
possibly to escape his ever-worsening financial situation, the elder Lindbergh launched a candidacy for Congress against a Republican embroiled in a corruption scandal. CA won the Republican primary, running as a progressive opposed to government corruption and vowed to aggressively represent the working class and their families. In November, he was elected to Congress, necessitating a move to the Capitol. The age-different, stoic, practically stiff personality and workaholic tendencies of her husband clashed with the more extroverted and younger attitudes of Evangeline. The relocation to Washington, D.C. did nothing to fix that situation, and the marriage quickly collapsed to the extent that the couple separated, going so far as to occupy separate residences. For the sake of her husband's political career and her child, Evangeline agreed to not formally divorce C.A., that her two stepdaughters also did not get along with her, as well as her realization that C.A. was sexually involved with one of his secretaries rendered the marriage irretrievably broken. Still, her husband's prominence and access to all the capital had to offer had its moments. One of them was her and her son's attendance at the 1912 Army aeronautical trials held to evaluate new aircraft, an event that immediately triggered Charles Lindbergh's lifelong fascination with mechanics, engineering, and aviation. Another possibly negative influence on the Lindbergh family was CA's alignment with factions eager to reform both corporate excess and social attitudes involving alcohol. This left him open to political opponents in his district, labeling him as hypocritical, based on his fat cat law practice and real estate speculation frequently at the expense of foreclosed farmers. C.A.'s response was to divest himself of corporate clients and minimize real estate investment, forcing the eventual sale of much of his property, minimizing his net worth, and drastically reducing his income. He further stamped himself as a political outlier by adamantly opposing America's entry into World War I and decrying the establishment of the Federal Reserve, which many populists believed allowed large banking interests greater control over the American financial system. After 10 years as a member of the House, C.A. Lindbergh decided to run for the Senate. He finished fourth and last in the Republican primary, vacating his congressional seat. In 1918, he ran in the Republican primary against the incumbent Republican governor and was defeated handily. By now, his views on World War I and the economy alienating and considered by many voters as un-American. He was literally hung in effigy during the campaign and occasionally pelted with eggs. Undoubtedly, both C.A.'s uncompromising and opinionated outlook rubbed off on his son, who took part in his campaigns frequently driving his father to campaign speeches and events and a witness to the hostile behavior of the public. Charles inherited his father's six-foot-two height and good looks, but his transient childhood induced a solitary personality with few, if any, friends and a reserve that bordered on the painfully shy. By 1920, aged 18, Charles Lindbergh had no certain career path himself, and like both of his parents, and despite any real enthusiasm, he decided to go to college, in his case, the University of Wisconsin. He lasted about a year and a half, 
failing three of five classes, which resulted in his dismissal from the university. Lindbergh then enrolled in the Lincoln Flying School in Lincoln, Nebraska, a month-long program that taught all aspects of aircraft design, maintenance, and the fundamentals of aviation. In April 1922, he arrived at the school on his motorcycle. By now, his father was broke, having resorted to speculating in Florida real estate and other unproductive efforts, including attempts to regain his former congressional seat and a Republican senatorial nomination. C.A.'s career as a perpetual candidate was only cut short by his death in 1924, ending his gubernatorial campaign. By then, Charles Lindbergh was a cadet in the Army's Air Reserve Training Program. An attempt to add formal instruction to his haphazard experiences of stunt flying, aerial flight instruction, and thrill rides for customers willing to pay for a brief spin in his secondhand patched-together biplane, purchased with his meager savings and loans from his father. Although he graduated on March 14, 1925, at the top of his class, one of only 19 of the original 103 candidates to do so, Lindbergh did not seek a position in the Army Air Corps itself, most likely because he believed he could not pass the requisite written examination. Nevertheless, his commanding officer wrote of him, he will successfully complete everything he undertakes. He is an intelligent, industrious young man and displays an unusual interest in his work. Eventually promoted to the rank of captain in the Army Air Reserve, Lindbergh still faced the challenge of transforming his aviation aptitude into a paying job. He settled in the St. Louis area and was hired to run the airmail operation for the Robertson Aircraft Company, a private sector entity that had obtained the U.S. Post Office franchise for the airmail route that serviced St. Louis and Chicago. This industry, in its infancy, literally consisted of biplanes delivering sacks of mail and expedited parcels, regardless of weather conditions. Lindbergh would also have to wait several months before the contract became official, spending this interim period in Colorado barnstorming with an air show that featured pilots like Lindbergh performing daredevil stunts and aerial tricks. The added experience in this rugged mountainous region was a valuable addition once Lindbergh actually began his airmail job in April of 1926. Because it required service in frequently changing and difficult weather, piloting airmail deliveries was an extremely dangerous job, killing one out of six aviators who attempted such employment. In the case of Robertson Aircraft, Lindbergh was also faced with using four Army surplus airplanes that were barely functional. So dangerous were these aircraft that Lindbergh demanded that a parachute be provided for each pilot, a request he personally eventually benefited from. Mapping out the best route between the two cities, Lindbergh hoped to benefit from any aircraft light beacons installed, eventually intended to be situated every 50 miles along the route. But in 1926, these navigational aids were few and far between. Even more daunting, many of these flights were expected to be conducted after dark. On April 15, 1926, Lindbergh set out from Chicago to St. Louis on the inaugural airmail run, a flight he would make with several other pilots many times over the course of the next few months.
although the success rate of the venture reached 99%. Twice, Lindbergh had to bail out of his aircraft when weather conditions prevented a safe landing. It was during this period of employment that Lindbergh became aware of the many prizes being awarded for the successful completion of various unprecedented airborne excursions, including the Ortigue Prize. The September 15, 1926, René Fonck disaster at Roosevelt Field only intrigued Lindbergh even further, but such an undertaking seemed hopelessly quixotic, with such well-funded aviation giants as Anthony Foker, Igor Sikorsky, and Richard Byrd involved in potentially launching attempts at transatlantic flight. An unknown airmail pilot in his mid-twenties stood little chance of competing on an even playing field. Luckily for Lindbergh, one of the fastest-growing aviation centers in the U.S. was in St. Louis, with a business community intent on establishing the centrally located city's Lambert Field as a nationwide transportation hub. The ever-analytical Lindbergh quickly put together a business presentation and began meeting with various St. Louis-based business and aviation executives, contacts he had developed based on his reputation as one of the most skilled pilots in the region. Lindbergh not only needed financial sponsorship, he needed a suitable aircraft. Already intent on using a single-engine monoplane, representatives of Anthony Foker informed him that the cost for a Foker trimotor was a prohibitive $100,000, and that Foker would not even consider building a monoplane to cross the Atlantic. Lindbergh then traveled to New York to pitch his idea to the Wright Aircraft Company, another manufacturer of the monoplane prototype. They also eventually turned him down aviation companies wary of getting their name involved in any potential disasters. Lindbergh then went as far as Ryan Aircraft in San Diego, an outfit he read about in aviation journals. He also asked his airmail company for a leave of absence to attempt to raise the funds necessary to pay for his airplane. After meeting with both the head of the St. Louis Flying Club and the Chamber of Commerce president, both extremely impressed with a confident and competent pilot, Lindbergh was assured that he would receive all the funding he needed and that he should focus on getting his plane manufactured as quickly as possible. Lindbergh was already up against it time-wise. His highly publicized competitors were in the final stages of preparation for an attempt to take the Ortigue Prize, but one by one, misfortune or disaster removed them from the competition. On April 16, 1927, Anthony Foker, Richard Byrd, and Floyd Bennett were involved in a test flight of a trimotor aircraft named the America. The plane Byrd and his crew expected to fly to Paris. It crashed while landing, severely injuring Bennett, breaking Byrd's arm, and knocking the Foker team out of the short-term running. On April 24th, Clarence Chamberlain damaged his plane, the Columbia, on takeoff, temporarily removing another high-profile Ortigue aspirant. On April 26th, Stanton Worcester and Noel Davis, attempting the test run of their overweight plane known as the American Legion, were killed shortly after takeoff from Langley Field in Hampton, Virginia. 
The most high-profile attempt to reach New York from Paris occurred on May 8th when, with great fanfare, Charles Nungesser and Francois Collie departed from Les Bourget and seemed on their way to success. Their plane, La Sault Blanc, possibly spotted as far as over Newfoundland. But the duo never arrived in New York, and their disappearance remains a mystery even today. Because the Ortigue Prize required a $250 entry fee, the press was aware of any potential attempts. That included Lindbergh, but right up until the time he took off, he was considered a very long shot to be the first to Paris. Wanting to observe the engineers who constructed his plane in person, Lindbergh headed to San Diego in March and immediately began to collaborate with Ryan Aircraft's president, Benjamin Mahoney, and chief engineer Donald Hall. Lindbergh's main concept was to assemble an aircraft completely stripped down of any extra weight that impacted fuel supply. Chief Engineer Hall put in 775 hours in an eight-week period, and once the other workers got wind of what was being constructed, they also began to work overtime to finish the project as quickly as possible. Completed by the end of April, Lindbergh conducted the first test flight of the plane over San Diego, lasting 20 minutes. He conducted 23 test flights lasting a total of four hours and 15 minutes before flying the plane to St. Louis for an inspection by his investors. Experiencing engine trouble over the turbulent Rockies, he actually was able to make flight adjustments that precluded an emergency landing, experience that helped prepare him for his transatlantic attempt. Appropriately, in deference to his investors, the aircraft was named the Spirit of St. Louis, this title appearing prominently on the front fuselage of the plane. He had dinner in St. Louis and got back into Spirit at 8.30 the next morning, landing at Curtis Field on Long Island at 3.30 p.m. on May 11th, a new transcontinental speed record. Anxious to get on with it, Lindbergh had to wait as stormy weather over the Atlantic made any flight unthinkable. He was actually accompanied by an entourage consisting of Ryan Aircraft and other aviation industry figures, and even a PR agency employee named Dick Blythe, who got word that the weather patterns over the Atlantic were becoming favorable. Blythe helped engineer the sale of exclusive rights to Lindbergh's story to the New York Times, although other newspapers openly derided his chances, maintaining that flying alone without a parachute for at least 35 consecutive hours, mostly at night, was suicidal. On the evening of May 19th, the entourage got confirmation from a meteorologist that the weather patterns over the Atlantic were turning favorable. Lindbergh and others immediately rushed to the airfield. This last-minute scramble resulted in Blythe's other major contribution, purchasing five sandwiches from a delicatessen, prompting one of Lindbergh's most famous press interactions. Spotting Lindbergh with the paper bag filled with sandwiches, a reporter had noted other aviators' food preparations, which frequently included weeks of survival rations and elaborate meals, and asked Lindbergh, if the sack lunch was all he was bringing, the pilot replied, well, if I get to Paris, I won't need any more food. And if I don't, I won't need any either. Between the last minute equipment checks and interruptions of any attempts at a nap, Lindbergh entered the cockpit of his plane on the morning of May 20th without any sleep for approximately 22 hours. 
His plane had been towed to nearby Roosevelt Field. The Anthony Foker Richard Byrd team had purchased exclusive rights to the airfield's runway, but sportingly offered Lindbergh the opportunity to take off on its longer surface. With over 2,700 pounds of fuel, Lindbergh needed as much leeway as possible to effect a safe takeoff. Unpaved and wet from days of damp drizzle, the surface of the runway was also less than ideal. Observers watched as Lindbergh began hurtling down the strip, his wheels slamming into the ground ominously three times before, at the last minute, he left the ground, clearing some wires and a clump of trees by no more than 20 feet. It was 7.52 a.m. Lindbergh quickly reached a height of 100 feet in the air as he set out over Long Island in the first minutes of his flight. He was also irritated by another airplane close by. Some enterprising photographers in a multi-passenger biplane undoubtedly getting a last photograph of Lindbergh before he left local airspace. The pilot was already unenthusiastic about the press, having read more than a few stories deriding his attempt and even calling his plane a flying coffin. While over land, Lindbergh would resort to using an installed earth inductor compass and 50-cent Rand McNally maps he had purchased in San Diego to navigate the plane. Once over water, he planned to use the compass with predetermined numerical headings. Over Long Island Sound, this was 065 degrees. So little did he understand about actual navigation that he spent much of the month of April discussing the rudiments of the skill with Ryan's Don Hall. Lindbergh next made landfall in the vicinity of Old Saybrook, Connecticut, close to where he expected to be. The two windows on the side of the aircraft were open. The wind would be a welcome stimulus. His thick wool flight suit and fur-lined collar shielding him from the temperatures that certainly would drop at nightfall as he headed out over the Atlantic. Lindbergh passed over Rhode Island and Massachusetts, Cape Cod to his right, as he adjusted his aircraft and headed towards Canada. His next big test was whether or not his crude navigation would get him to his intended course just to the west of the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. And after his initial period over the open water of the Gulf of Maine, and from his map he spotted the unmistakable elongated peninsula that forms the western edge of St. Mary's Bay on the west coast of the province of Nova Scotia. It is here that Lindbergh encountered his first alarming development, rain squalls that rocked the airplane with turbulence, forcing disconcerting moisture into the cockpit. Luckily, the rain and accompanying fog was only temporary, and Lindbergh made a decision to plot a course that will take him over St. John's, Newfoundland, a town large enough so that someone could observe him and send word back to New York that he had made it that far. He does have windows that he can slot into the open sides of his aircraft, but he decided not to use them, wanting the stimulus of the wind and even the ability to lean out of the fuselage, his cockpit small enough to allow that alternative. As he got out over open water again, he noticed ice in the water below, where the Atlantic meets the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Nine hours into the flight, he spotted the southern Newfoundland islands of Grand Miquillon, and Saint-Pierre as the sun got closer to the edge of the horizon. After observing one of the most remarkable sunsets ever witnessed by a human being, 11 hours into his flight, Lindbergh reached St. John's and dove to an altitude 
that he hoped would attract attention and notification back to the U.S. He is not aware that his presence over Nova Scotia has already been cabled to news services in New York. In the early evening, President Coolidge released a statement. He has my best wishes for his success. At a boxing match in Yankee Stadium, 40,000 fans heard of Lindbergh's progress and were asked to stand for a moment of silence and prayer for the safe Paris arrival of the pilot. Lindbergh is now reaching a critical juncture. Near or over land, his ability to successfully survive an emergency landing is at least a possibility. Not so over the ocean. He also will not have the visible landmarks that have helped confirm his navigation so far. The next land he will hopefully pass over is the Dingle Peninsula of southern Ireland, 2,000 miles away. His navigation will now be subjected to the ultimate test. Pass, and he is at least somewhere close to a recognizable geographic objective. Fail, and he will be too far away to reach Paris. Or worse, run out of fuel in some unknown corner of the Atlantic Ocean. It is not long before he can spot the Big Dipper and the North Star through the clear canopy above his head. The longest night of Lindbergh's life has begun. The darkness means that the pilot will have to use a flashlight to view his instrument panel. He climbs to an altitude of 10,000 feet, continuing on a compass heading of 089 degrees. It is 9 p.m., and by his own estimate based on time, as he has no fuel gauge, he still has 300 gallons of gas left, more than enough. With the increase in altitude comes a decrease in temperature, and Lindbergh estimates that it is now about 23 degrees Fahrenheit in the cockpit. His back and neck muscles are already starting to ache with not much he can do to relieve the tension. It is at this moment that he also confronts his first major crisis. He determines suddenly that he is flying through falling ice crystals, moisture quickly freezing on his wings that could potentially foul both his air speedometer and altimeter, both crucial. It could also ice up his wings severely, disrupting appropriate airflow and inducing an engine stall. At the same time, he notices a dark thickness in the distance that indicates a thunderstorm ahead, an extremely dangerous obstacle that should be avoided if at all possible. Lindbergh descends and heads south until once again he can see stars and the ice disappears. He is 15 hours into the flight, the point of no return, a safe landing spot in North America almost as distant as Europe. And it is here that the powerful danger of fatigue begins to slowly attempt to overwhelm his willpower. More than once his eyes involuntarily close for seconds at a time. He shakes this feeling off by looking at his maps and reviewing each instrument on the dashboard in front of him. Noting that the time on the clock that is part of his instrument panel reads midnight New York time and that he is probably about a thousand miles due south of Greenland, it is actually 2 a.m. Heading east at 100 miles per hour, it won't be long before dawn. And sure enough, very slowly at first, Lindbergh notices the faintest traces of a lightning sky. He is exhilarated, but this is now the third morning he has gone without sleep, and soon he is practically losing control over his entire body, his eyes involuntarily closing. He tries to dull the monotony by first drinking water from his canteen and then realizes he hasn't eaten a thing since yesterday morning. But he decides against eating, thinking it might make him even more lethargic. 
Instead, he descends, not out of necessity, but only to give him something to do. Lindbergh gets another jolt of excitement when he discerns actual sunlight. He is energized and decides to descend until he sees the visible waves of the Atlantic Ocean. But he feels the terrific impact of what he thinks might be at least a 30-mile-an-hour wind and thinks better of flying at such a low altitude. Sunlight faded into mist and fog. Once again, Lindbergh has to literally pry open his eyelids to remain awake. He decides to descend again, this time only five feet above water, sea spray from the waves entering the cabin, another desperate attempt to fight off fatigue. Realizing that in the foggy early morning, such a tactic is extremely dangerous, Lindbergh climbs higher. Soon after this, Lindbergh actually hallucinates ghostly ethereal forms that emit voices. Lindbergh begins to slip into a kind of dream state where he questions whether he is even alive or if he is already dead. At 200 feet above the ocean, he can see the shadow of his plane on the waves below, and the pain he feels in his back, neck, and legs is all too real, but now almost reassuring. Still, at least once, he closes his eyes and is in the first stages of losing consciousness when he suddenly jerks awake and has to take back control of his rapidly descending plane without causing it to stall. The absolute terror of practically falling asleep at the wheel propels Lindbergh for several more minutes. His hallucinations seem to diminish once he gets out of mist and fog and into sunlight. He has another momentary anxiety attack when he experiences the phenomena of a nautical mirage that simulates land. For a moment convinced that perhaps he is completely straight off course and is over some unforeseen location like Greenland. But the mirage dissipates, and Lindbergh knows that the airborne temperature over Greenland would be far colder. His clock reads 8 o'clock New York time. He has been in the air for 24 hours. He attempts some basic calculations using average airspeed, time, and wind velocity. But the latter he can only estimate, not able to really measure either the wind's direction or average velocity. His educated guess is that he's about 500 miles off of the coast of Ireland. The sun is now bright and he is wide awake, perhaps a transitory second wind. Attempting to prolong his current state of awareness, he grabbed a smelling salts capsule from his first aid kit and cracked it under his nose, one hand still on the flight stick. It has absolutely no effect. Lindbergh presumes his senses have become completely impervious to such a stimulus. Possibly out of boredom, he descends again to just over 10 feet above the waves, but again realizes the danger far outweighs any benefit of increased awareness. This close to the water, he spots a porpoise, the first living creature since Newfoundland. And minutes later, he spots some birds, gulls flying and diving into the ocean. These are both positive signs that he is closing in on the continent. But then Lindbergh gets the most encouraging sign of all. At first, he rubs his eyes and shakes his head, just to be sure. But there they still are. No mirage. Several small boats. Fishing boats, not big enough to to be ocean-going and near enough to some unnamed harbor that should be relatively close by. He circled one of them close enough to see a man's face in a porthole window, and Lindbergh impulsively yelled, which way to Ireland? But the man certainly can't hear him, and Lindbergh quickly pulls up and continued in an easterly direction. Lindbergh's optimism that he is near something turns to incredulity when he thinks he can make out land no more than 15 miles ahead. If so, 
and if he is somewhere near his intended flight path, he is hours ahead of schedule. His clock reads 11 a.m. New York time, 3 p.m. Irish time. Lindbergh takes out a nautical chart and attempts to match it up with the landforms he sees below. He is at 2,000 feet and first believes he is entering the bay in the vicinity of Galway, north of where he would like to be, but still not bad only about 150 miles off course, and certainly with landmarks correctable. But after a closer look, he sees that his chart is showing a perfect match with Valencia Island at the end of the Ring of Kerry, the peninsula that parallels the Dingle Peninsula to the north. After flying 3,000 miles and 27 hours, mostly through darkness, Lindbergh is only 25 miles to the south of his intended flight path. Occasionally, in the deep green countryside, he flew over villages, wagons, and people visible on the road. Invariably, they wave up to him. He is 600 miles from Le Bourget, the English Channel, the last major body of water that he will have to traverse. Initially, he expected to arrive in Paris sometime in the early morning, but it is now late afternoon local time. And Lindbergh is ahead of schedule and due to arrive in Paris at about 10.30 p.m., exuberant knowing that the worst is behind him his only other near mishap occurs when he allows one of the gas tanks to empty causing his engine to shudder and misfire he opens the valve to another tank the engine quickly responding this mistake caused by understandable euphoria momentarily distracting him from his normally strident attention to detail his last major task is to reach the Kutenta Peninsula of Normandy, which will lead him to the Seine River, a landmark he can follow all the way to central Paris. He gets there just as the sun begins to set. The second night of Lindbergh's flight is minutes away, but his circumstances are now very different. The port of Cherbourg is visible, and he flies along the Normandy coast. The mouth of the Seine appeared between the coastal towns of Deauville and Le Havre. Curious about the beach resort town of Deauville, he descends close enough to be able to see umbrellas and the boardwalk, already lit up for a Saturday night. He is close enough to see people running towards the sound of his airplane, looking skyward. Lindbergh finally rewards himself with a sandwich and more water from his canteen. He ascends to 1,000 feet, and even in the darkening light, he can see the unmistakable Seine River, practically a directional beacon to his destination. To make this last part of his flight even simpler, there are even actual air beacons placed every few miles, flashing at frequent intervals, quite visible on this very clear night. With each passing minute, Lindbergh gets closer to what initially he perceives as a small glow on the horizon. It gets larger and larger until it encompasses most of Lindbergh's visibility, undoubtedly the city of Paris, straight ahead. Suddenly, Lindbergh is close enough to see bridges over the river. Previously told that Le Bourget is about 10 miles northeast of Paris, he wants to orient himself with some landmark in the central city. Eventually, the most prominent landmark of all, the Eiffel Tower, is visible below. He heads northeast, estimating the distance he is covering minute by minute. He looks for a rectangle of dark land within an urban area, what an airfield resembled from the air at night. Lindbergh quickly spots such a pattern, but it seems too close to the center of town. The light begins to dissipate, and Lindbergh realizes he is not only now out in the countryside, but there is nothing remotely resembling a large urban airfield. 
He turns around and almost immediately begins to descend from 4,000 feet. He approaches the dark patch of land and quickly can make out buildings that resemble airport hangars. It is Le Bourget, but Lindbergh will still have to figure out exactly where he can land on a dimly lit strip after 33 hours and 3,700 miles. There seem to be several large spotlights on one edge of the field and a trail of much smaller lights that tail off into the distance. Lindbergh circles the airfield close enough to discern that these lights come from automobiles, hundreds of them, but he has no idea why they are there. In fact, from the moment he made landfall in Ireland, radio reports of his progress are heard throughout the French capital, and thousands of people have now clogged the route to Les Bourget. The floodlights are at the western edge of the airfield and seem to mark the beginning of the airport's runway. Lindbergh can see a large open space between buildings and decides to have a closer look before landing. Ironically, his landing is turning into the most nerve-wracking part of his journey. He buzzed the field, took a good look, and after ascending, decided that yes, this grass-covered area is certainly clear enough for a landing. One more turn and he sets up for his final approach. He passes over the searchlights and drops to about 20 feet above ground. This is it. The field is approaching rapidly at 85 miles per hour. The wheels suddenly bounce on the sod-covered area, and Lindbergh maneuvers the stick and rudder to reduce the speed of the airplane and engineer a stopping maneuver that swerves the plane into a 180-degree angle. The Spirit of St. Louis now reversing safely in the directions of the floodlights at the other end of the field. For a brief moment, Lindbergh is lost in his own thoughts, but then, despite his leather helmet, and the cotton he has stuffed in his ears to reduce the deafening sound of his engine, he can hear noise, especially because he initially figured on getting to Paris at 2 o'clock in the morning. Lindbergh wondered if anyone would even know or care what he arrived. Now a crowd estimated at 100,000 people was eagerly trying to access the airfield. The cars he saw a traffic jam backed up all the way to central Paris. After the landing, many of the spectators tore down the chain-link fence and began running to the direction of Lindbergh's plane. Only moments after Lindbergh shut off the engine, the spirit of St. Louis was set upon by the crowd, faces cramming through both of the plane's windows. Weight from the spectators began to put stress on the wings. Lindbergh was soon carried out of the cockpit, his flight log stolen and leather cap taken off of his head. Most concerning to him was the damage the crowd was doing to the plane, tearing off pieces of the outer fabric and anything that wasn't solidly attached. Two French aviators managed to extricate him after another individual, described historically as everything from a reporter to a college student, wound up with Lindbergh's goggles and leather flight helmet on his head, and the crowd chased after him, thinking that this was the aviator. After a great deal of confusion, Lindbergh was conveyed by the two pilot benefactors to the private residence of the American ambassador, Myron Herrick, but not before he insisted on going back to the hangar where Spirit was now under guard. The plane had gaping holes where fabric was torn from the fuselage, and some parts were damaged or removed, but there was nothing anyone could do about that now. There was a short stop at the Arc de Triomphe, where the three men got out to look briefly at the French tomb of the unknown soldier, and then Lindbergh was dropped off at the ambassador's residence. Herrick was still trying to locate Lindbergh at Le Bourget and did not make it home until 3 a.m. 
only to find the young aviator already there in a pair of borrowed pajamas. Journalists were also already waiting and sensing an opportunity to play up the story immediately. The ambassador asked Lindbergh if he would like to meet with them. Lindbergh said no, wanting to honor his exclusive with the New York Times. The Times reporter present magnanimously decided to allow other reporters to participate in an interview, but then wrote a sensationalized story that contained fables that would be repeated for decades. Two especially egregious assertions were that the first thing Lindbergh asked for upon landing was a glass of milk, and he was so sure of himself and his navigation that he paid no attention to his fuel supply and only needed to circle the airport once before quickly landing. The writer also claimed the interview took place at the embassy, not the ambassador's residence. Such embroidery only hardened Lindbergh's negative attitude towards journalists in general. A Chicago Tribune reporter went further, seemingly inspired by Disney, claiming Lindbergh was offered and drank a shot of brandy provided by one of the French pilots. Lindbergh didn't drink. That as a boy, he tied a bicycle to a high tree limb and sat on it simulating flying that he had a live kitten as a good luck charm in the cockpit during his flight, and quoted Lindbergh as stating that climbing into the spirit's cockpit was like entering his death chamber. The press interview lasted for about 10 minutes before the ambassador interceded. When Lindbergh finally hit the sack, it was 4.15 a.m. local Paris time, the aviator having gone without sleep for almost two and a half days. Perhaps his only real bravado displayed during... The entire aftermath of his arrival in Paris was his parting comment to Herrick not to bother to wake him, as he was sure to get up on his own at the customary time of 9 a.m. In fact, he slept for 10 solid hours, waking up in the early afternoon. In the U.S., the country was gripped by excitement. Confirmation of Lindbergh's successful landing received by the American press only minutes after it occurred. Millions of extra editions of newspapers trumpeted the news all over the nation, and Lindbergh quickly became an American phenomenon. President Coolidge was keenly following Lindbergh's flight and was subsequently uncharacteristically loquacious about it, stating, The more we learn of his accomplishment in going from New York to Paris, the greater it seems to have been. That is something that grows on us the more we contemplate it. From her Detroit home, where she returned not wanting to be a distraction before her son took off, Lindbergh's relieved mother commented to the press, It is all too wonderful. I do not know how I could be more happy than I am today. I am happy that it is over, more happy than I can ever tell. He has accomplished the greatest undertaking of his life, and I am proud to be the mother of such a boy. Evangeline, a chemistry teacher at a local high school, taught her class, on the previous Friday, while her son was in the air, hoping a routine would help diminish her anxiety. For an individual who came to famously shun media attention, Lindbergh immediately displayed a remarkable flair for public relations. His first request after borrowing some clothing was to talk to his mother, which he did by telephone via radio, an interaction that was widely reported by the press. Next, Lindbergh asked to meet the mother of missing and presumed dead French pilot Charles Nungesser, whose plane had disappeared only days before Lindbergh's attempt. Nungesser was not only an adventurous aviator, but a national hero after his service in World War I as one of France's most decorated flying aces. 
Accompanied by Ambassador Herrick, Lindbergh was greeted by Nungesser's mother with kisses on both cheeks and the greeting, You are a very brave young man. I congratulate you from the bottom of my heart. Lindbergh also refused a 150,000-franc prize from the Aero Club de France, requesting instead that it be donated to the families of the missing French pilots. He did accept the $25,000 Ortigue prize. Raymond Ortigue, who was already vacationing in France, rushed to Paris upon hearing of Lindbergh's epic arrival, although the actual check would be presented weeks later in New York. In a seven-day whirlwind of banquets, parades, and testimonials, the pilot was awarded the French Légion d'Honneur, the country's highest award for bravery or civic achievement, the key to the city of Paris, and a procession down the Champs-Élysées mobbed by over a half a million people. Then it was off to Belgium and more medals from Belgium's King Albert before Lindbergh crossed the Channel again, intent on the British capital. His destination, Croydon Airfield, just outside of town, Lindbergh realized while circling the field that the massive crowd that numbered over 150,000 people had crashed through any barriers and were crowded onto the landing strip. He pulled up and circled until police could clear the area. Landing safely, he also refused to leave the cockpit until he received an escort and the plane was cordoned off from spectators. He met both the Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin and George V at Buckingham Palace. While in England, it was explained to Lindbergh that President Coolidge was sending a destroyer to Britain to convey him and his plane back to the U.S. Most likely, the pilot's intent on continuing his tour of Europe and ultimate plan to return to America via Siberia, the Bering Strait, and Alaska had set off alarm bells in Washington. American Ambassador Houghton made... It gently but firmly clear that while this was a request, if Lindbergh refused, his status as a member of the Missouri Air Reserve would precipitate a direct order. His plane was boxed up in Britain, and Lindbergh eventually set sail on the USS Memphis on June 3rd. The Memphis crossed the Atlantic as quickly as possible. Lindbergh perceived as both affable and cooperative by all on board and was met offshore by an escort of four additional destroyers. As the ship sailed into Chesapeake Bay and up the Potomac, the shore was lined with thousands of people waiting to greet the returning aviator. At 11.45, Lindbergh came ashore at the Washington Navy Yard. Among the dignitaries waiting to greet him as he returned to American soil was his mother, Evangeline, and President Coolidge, who pinned the distinguished flying cross on Lindbergh's chest. Lindbergh, by virtue of his military commission, was also eventually awarded the Medal of Honor and promoted to colonel in the Air Reserve. Lindbergh's remarkable fame immediately translated into economic opportunity. He signed a contract with Putnam for a ghost-written book, so poorly composed by the same New York Times reporter, Carlisle MacDonald, that Lindbergh found the time to quickly rewrite it himself. The book entitled We, Lindbergh always acknowledging his plane as the duo that achieved the successful flight, was released within several weeks and sold 200,000 copies in 30 days. But this one-off was followed up by an offer from the Daniel Guggenheim Fund for the Promotion of Aeronautics to embark on a 90-day flying tour of all 48 United States. In, of course, the spirit of St. Louis, the tour meant to encourage the acceptance of aviation as a legitimate method of transportation. This also came with a $50,000 stipend.
This was much more to his liking than many of the get-rich-quick schemes pouring over the transom, including a staggering $500,000 contract offer from William Randolph Hearst to star in a film. Between the Guggenheim assignment, the Ortigue Prize, the book deal, and another $25,000 grant from the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, Lindbergh's flight immediately generated substantial financial returns. Eager to escape the tidal wave of media attention that followed him wherever he went, Lindbergh began his national tour on July 20, 1927, leaving from an airfield on Long Island, New York. The solitude of his plane and the process of flight a welcome sanctuary. He visited 82 cities in all 48 states and delivered 147 speeches, logging 22,350 air miles before returning to New York on October 23rd. Eager to get involved in flights to even further destinations, Lindbergh then accepted an invitation from Dwight Morrow, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, to fly to Mexico City. Morrow was a former partner at J.P. Morgan Bank, one of the wealthiest residents of the state of New Jersey and the chairman of a presidential board that oversaw the development of the aircraft industry. In that capacity, he had close ties to Lindbergh, who perceived him as a mentor and friend. The country of Mexico was gratified by the visit of both the aviator and his plane, but another much more personal development unfolded during this trip. Lindbergh met and was immediately attracted to Morrow's daughter, Anne Spencer Morrow, and after a courtship of a year and a half, the couple was married at the Morrow Estate in New Jersey on May 27, 1929. By then, Lindbergh had donated the spirit of St. Louis to the Smithsonian Institution, where today it remains on display, suspended from the ceiling of the Arts and Industries Building. Charles and Ann Morrow Lindbergh had a son named Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Jr. on June 22, 1930. Lindbergh continued to work in the field of aviation, flying and promoting airmail services, experimenting with gliders, and collaborating with the recently formed entity Pan American Airways a corporation attempting to launch a commercial passenger airline. He built a large home on 425 secluded acres of land near Princeton, New Jersey, calling it Highfields. Not even 30 years old, one of the most prominent and successful figures on the American scene, both Lindbergh and his family's future seemed very bright indeed. But like a character in a Shakespearean play or Greek tragedy, Lindbergh was about to experience a sequence of events and chart a path that eventually completely changed both his life and the public perception of a man formerly considered one of America's greatest heroes. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Charles Lindbergh. Information for this podcast came from the books Loss of Eden by Joyce Milton, The Flight by Dan Hampton, and Forward from Here by Reeve Lindbergh. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People. Follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons 
Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and please tell a friend about bite-sized biographies.